0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the mayor and the premier are putting differences aside to discuss LRT. Is that the clanging of the bell I hear in the distance? A prominent Russian is poisoned by his own government. How concerned should we be? And Hamilton Police Service has said they are not going to hold a pilot project for body cameras right now. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson,
1: Scott's son. My friend Tom's here. Hello. A staggered start to the school year means
2: I'm not in school Tuesday. Woohoo! Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: You know, the studio is getting more and more crowded. Is everybody safe distancing here? Thank goodness they had their masks on. Uh, Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air as we uh, finish off week number 25. Week number 25, and uh, kids supposedly going back to school uh, would have been on Tuesday, however staggered starts and such, uh, depending on where you are, that is uh, all changed and, of course, allowing more time for everyone to get ready for uh, the big day. So, uh, again, the longest March break in history continues. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can hit the website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Don't forget about Facebook and Twitter. You can find all of the commentary uh, there, the podcast edition of. Uh, what's that sound I'm hearing? Is that the – no, that's the boys outside the door. Uh, No, I think over and above that what I'm hearing is the clanging of an LRT bell. Here we go again. Man, fascinating. And, you know, I knew this was going to happen, uh, covering the press conference of uh, Premier Doug Ford yesterday in Hamilton. Of course he was going to get asked about LRT. And when he was, the reaction was quite positive, especially now that Liuna uh, seems to be involved. First, let's start with uh, some clips here of what the premier had to say. Even if we get some of it going, we we have a billion dollars. Here's a shout out for the federal government. For the federal government, we need your help. We need you at the table, and I know they want to, but they haven't uh, they haven't showed up at the door yet. Once we get the support of the federal government, the provincial government, and public private partnerships through Liuna. We can get it going. And as the mayor and I said, even if we move it a little bit, move it, get half, get two thirds, get anything going, we can add on to it. The critical thing is get the shovels in the ground. And my theory in life is there's always a way to make things happen. Uh, they may not happen overnight, but the money's sitting there. And my friend, Deputy Prime Minister, you've always supported us, but we, the people of Hamilton need your support. Wow, isn't that something? Uh, it's amazing how the tune changes. Uh, here's what Mayor Fred. Here's a series of clips. What Mayor Fred had to say about this.
3: So uh, you know, good news for Hamilton. Uh, you know, great to hear the premier uh, listening to uh, Hamilton's uh, you know long arduous journey on this pro- project. Uh, you know, look for that private sector partner that you know in some respects already there. I'm not sure how that's going to flow, but uh, certainly Liuna has been very very active, at least supportive of the uh, LRT in Hamilton and certainly has been active in trying to get it back on track. The moment I spoke to the prime minister about, uh, you know, these issues, he said, we we need to do something and get this LRT going in Hamilton. I've spoken to uh, Minister McKenna, who's, uh, you know, had a favorable response. Uh, You know, obviously her her heart is in Hamilton to to a degree, born and raised here. But we need to go through a process in terms of how that shapes up and what that might look like.
0: All right, there's uh, Fred Eisenberger, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, on with Bill Kelly earlier this morning talking about uh, a meeting he had uh, with the Premier yesterday when he was in Hamilton and obviously uh, discussing LRT. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Uh, He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Just fine, thank you. And by the way, I was a little worried earlier in the week when uh, Chris was talking about remuneration. I thought by now there might be a strike at the Thompson household and uh, a unionization effort in foot.
0: Well, you know what's going to happen when school starts and he's off to school, there's going to have to be some sort of an arrangement, a recording session going on, and who knows where that's going to lead, Marvin. So I I think you're absolutely right. Uh, The longer this goes, the harder it's going to get for Daddy, that's for sure. Anyway, are you surprised to be hearing the clang of the LRT bell again?
2: Well, I'm going to say no, but I I have to pull you back just a little bit i'm not sure i'm actually hearing an lrt bell i'm what i'm hearing is a lot of nice positive statements and certainly doug ford has been the happiest premier in ontario for the last seven months uh, uh he's not happy about covid but boy you know if you can be his friend on something he's your friend on something and he speaks glowingly i i'm not sure i've ever seen relations between ottawa and queens park in toronto this good uh, everyone speaks nicely of each other, but no one's actually put any dollars right on the table. And even now, I'm getting a little sense of fingers pointing in an opposite direction. Uh, Doug Ford says, We need uh, Ottawa to come to the table. Ottawa says, You just invite us and we'll be there. Well, wait a minute. You're talking past each other. Somebody step forward. Somebody make something happen. But uh, to your point, it, we've got at least good positive sound bites that isn't what we had i can remember very clearly in december of 2019 when carolyn mulroney came into town she's the minister of transportation to make an announcement it turned out to be the announcement that was going to kill the lrt going to do a press conference then she didn't do that then she did this then she kind of crept out of town my goodness what a difference uh, less than a year makes
0: uh we were talking about this uh a few weeks ago and again we've talked about it so many times it's hard to remember when uh and and i remember you saying at that point that when when all of this uh perhaps when the first uh uh, note of the leuna deal came out that uh this was pretty much in the province's court uh now that the that the premier has said what he said is it now in the feds court i mean i have a hard time believing this is all going to get caught up in etiquette on who calls who
2: yeah, well, I, I hear what you're saying, but there, even though he's had a press conference and he spoke into a camera and said, okay, Ottawa, we need you at the table, that's not a formal request. And uh, the right minister has to talk to the right minister. The minister of transportation needs to talk to the minister who's who's going to be funding these projects in Ottawa. And And sometimes, Scott, I have seen it come down to everyone says the right thing at press conferences, but if you don't do it with the right channels behind the scenes it doesn't happen now one of the positive things behind lrt is not lrt at all but covid and as we are trying to emerge from covid today for instance we saw the employment data for august Uh, good news in the sense that the unemployment rate went from 10.9 to 10.2 percent but bad news because i thought maybe it'd be back into the nine range it's still taking a while to get things bouncing back so i think ottawa and Queens Park are in a mood to fund some infrastructure projects in the hope of kickstarting the economy and getting it back to where it was. And having a shovel ready infrastructure project should move Hamilton uh, more onto the list. But still, the right people have to talk to the right people to get those dollars to start flowing.
0: So a positive mood in the sense that uh, Leona's come in and now we're talking about multi-level government uh, participation, but also uh, this could be spawned by uh, post-COVID-19 infrastructure spending. That being said, Marvin, what's next? Whose whose job is it to set up this meeting?
2: Well, uh, let me come at that in a couple of different ways. First, whose job is it to reassemble the team? Uh, when this happened last December, the city of Hamilton said, well, if it's dead, we're not going to keep people on the payroll. And there was quite a team, I'm going to tell you, it was two dozen people, maybe three dozen people whose job it was to do all the drawings, get all the p- things in process for this, and it was all disassembled, and those people have now spread to the wind um, some of them you might be able to hire back but some of them may have jobs in other places so who's going to actually take charge of that and make that happen and then who's going to be the catalyst for the meeting If i was the mayor and i'm sensing both parties the federal government and the provincial government saying the right things I would want to take this and say it's not my job necessarily, but uh, Ms. McKenna, can you, have you, are you free next week? And uh, yeah. oh, uh, Ms. Mulroney, are you free next week? I, I'd love to have a little meeting with the, us all at the table to see if we can make it happen. I think if Fred waits for the province or the feds, he might be waiting a long time. If he would like to see some action on this, I think he's going to have to take the bull by the horns.
0: And does he have the, the support from council to do that, or will he?
2: Well... I, I see at this point, I'm not sure he has to go back to council necessarily. He should inform them. He should inform them of what he's doing. But their last recorded votes on this was that they were uh, supporting LRT, and it came as a great disappointment to, in in December to see the rug pulled out from underneath. Now, certainly since then, there have been people who said, well, if there's a billion dollars on the table, here's how we might spend it instead if LRT is dead. But if LRT is not dead, their last vote still stands, as far as I can tell. So if uh, this dead project, like Lazarus, is coming back from the dead, I'm not sure he has to have another vote of city council.
0: Uh, So obviously this was all triggered with Leuna and them stepping up to offer some sort of partnership. What's in this for Leuna?
2: Um, Well, a couple of things. Leuna stands for the Labor's International Union of North America. So they uh, would like to get jobs for their workers. Uh, Doing this infrastructure project, building this LRT would be great. It would keep people employed. I think what Leona is also suggesting with this public-private partnership is that they know some, for lack of a better term, I'll call them land development people, who were very excited about LRT because their plan was to build some buildings, most likely condos, near some of the hubs along the route, Now, the minute this was canceled, then their interest in doing that went to zero. Uh, But I think Leona is thinking we can get that restarted. And again, if we're building condo projects, that needs people, that keeps their union members employed, creating good jobs, paying jobs. So I think that's primarily their interest. I don't think they necessarily want to take an equity stake in this, and I don't think they necessarily want to learn how to operate that that's another union involved there but i think in terms of of kick-starting development along the route that's really what leona's interest is
0: by bringing in more partnership like this is it giving up too much control are we giving away the farm
2: well you raise a good question and that's one of those things we like to say the devil then is in the detail The concept the concept of the feds and the province cooperating along with some private sector partners great concept great concept but the devil will be in the details who gives up what what percentage goes here who contributes what and how is it a loan is it an investment that that's got to be hammered out and that's really the negotiating that goes on behind closed doors that can't be done in public can't be done in press conferences but it's got to be done behind closed doors and then you need all the parties to sign off on it so um, I think the concept of a public-private partnership, I've never been opposed to the concept, but there are some executions of these which are good and some which aren't. You know, Again, a simple example, uh, the 407 toll highway is a private, privately owned thing, and I think most people feel, hmm... You know, we gave the farm away there. That that yeah. wasn't a good deal. But there are others where the private sector has been involved. In fact, people don't really realize it because it's been working so well. So, as always, it's the devils in the details.
0: So at least everybody seems to be in an agree- in agreement that they want to move forward with this. They want to keep talking. So it, it it appears that eventually this will be a win-win for everyone, no? Again, for the reasons you're saying not only in regard to LRT and where it is in the debate we've had, but simply because uh governments are looking to to spend infrastructure money to get the recovery moving.
2: Well, let me let me just say it a little differently. If if we had this project die in uh, December, there's some heartbeats in the body. It's not clear to me yet whether the body is being fully resuscitated or whether it's still on life support. Here, you'll recall when Carolyn Mulroney came here and canceled the project, she used a number five point five billion dollars. Wait a minute, where'd that number come from? Now, we now know through some documents that were released that they were adding in everything, all the operational costs, all the capital costs, all the financing costs, and that's how they got to $5.5 billion. Liuna's number is $3.4 billion dollars. I'm guessing the big difference between those two numbers is some of the operational costs, that that will be assumed by whoever's going to run it. They're going to have to do it. So, again, um, you know, is the province, when the province says we've got a billion dollars or maybe $1.2 billion, is that over the lifetime of the project? Is that a capital cost? And And nobody pressed Mr. Ford on that, and I, I don't think he actually had those details yesterday either. He was glad handing and trying to say the best things. But when you actually then try to put dollars in and plug those things in, again, I think this could still fall apart. Is it's Hamilton's story about projects that almost come together, then fall apart, then almost come together again? <laughs>
0: uh, it,
2: it's, not, it's not finished by a stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah, you're right. There's lots of history to point to there. Uh, Is there a timeline here, Marvin? And I know I'm asking you a question that you can't answer, but is there a timeline here, a sweet spot to get this restarted? Like, for example, if we don't get this restarted in the next three months, it's dead, six months, year, what have you?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, if, if the idea here is to get the federal government and the province when they are trying to do some COVID recovery, then I think your sweet spot is probably anywhere from the next three months to the next year. I think we'll we'll still be talking about COVID recovery in the summer of 2021. But if you can't get the names on the document and get everyone signed, you don't necessarily have to have a shovel in the ground, but you have to have an agreement worked out and the handshakes and the glad handing, what have you. That's your window. So I think there's sort of three to nine months, maybe at the outside a year to make all of this happen. Here's the other little thing, and I don't want to confuse this, but uh, you know there's well there's a group of people proposing that Hamilton host the Commonwealth Games in 2026. Yep. Um, if you could get this project started in late 2021, you might have much of the LRT completed before 2026. But if if the shovels don't go in the ground until 2022 or 2023, I don't think we can be hosting a, a Commonwealth Games at the same time that we're building an LRT. And I think Hamilton will probably going to have to look at these two projects as almost mutually exclusive rather than coming together, unless they can make some magic happen really, really fast.
0: We all talk about, or we've talked about many times, how life changes post-COVID-19. How will transit change? How does this offer us an opportunity building this post-COVID-19? Is it different now? Is it a different yeah. model?
2: The, again, why it's hard to answer that question is that we're still not sure what a post-COVID world looks like. Is a post-COVID world one that has a, an effective vaccine for COVID, and is that effective vaccine um, Taken by sixty, seventy, eighty percent of the population. If we do that, if we can get an effective vaccine and and used at that kind of a level, then that's what we call that herd immunity. And COVID will just be in the distant rearview mirror. We will get back, and life will be very, very similar to what it was in January and February. But as it stands right now, with the social distancing and the masks and the you know, quarantining, what have you, uh, you, people are reluctant. People are still fearful about putting themselves in close proximity to others. Uh, You're going to hear before the end of this year is out what bus ridership is like, and I'm just going to guarantee you the numbers are down. Even though they've now opened up more space on the buses in Hamilton, people are reluctant. Now, it is the summer, and it's easier to ride a bike or walk or do something else. Bus transit use always goes up during the winter months when it's just colder and messier out there. But I think there's still a lot of people fearful. So if it, where we get to post-COVID, when do we clear post-COVID, we're not there yet. And that's going to make a big difference on transit.
0: Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the group school of business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. I will. You do the same. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have seen this uh, over time and, and, and over the last uh, week or so, uh, and the commentary that uh, that is on the global news site right now by Matthew Fisher is, Western condemnation of, of Exali, uh, Naval Navalny poisoning won't trouble Vladimir Putin. Uh, one of Vladimir Putin's, uh, uh, one of the many people against his style of politics, I guess, and a threat to him, uh, all of a sudden uh, found himself poisoned. Uh, to talk more about all of this and where we are with this case, uh, let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News, and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: I'm doing very well. Thank you uh, to Will and to you for playing a little bit of Gordon Lightfoot. It reminds me of my youth uh, by the CPR railway tracks and the on uh, Lake Superior's north shore.
0: Oh, my goodness. What a beautiful part of the country.
3: It is beautiful. Too bad the passenger trains don't pass by there anymore. But uh, it is a lovely part of
0: the country. All right. Tell us about this person. Tell us why he was a threat to Vladimir Putin.
3: Well, simply he was a threat because uh, he was pointing out uh, just how corrupt uh, and uh, venal uh, the uh, Putin regime is and how uh, how sort of crummy scummy uh, his cronies are uh, Putin has a habit of eliminating any political enemies uh, sometimes he jails them uh, sometimes he poisons them and in this case uh, it sure looks like it's a poison a type of poison uh, that only can be made in the uh, state labs. It's a military-grade nerve agent known as Novichok, which means newcomer or new guy uh, from the Russian. And uh, Alexei Navalny has been a thorn in Putin's side for a number of years and and was now uh, embarked on a cross-country campaign to uh, incite people to demonstrate against Putin's regime. And, of course, Vladimir Putin, being a dictator, doesn't like that kind of stuff. And uh, without anybody holding him back, he tends to have people he doesn't like thrown in jail on trumped up charges or murdered.
0: How do we, w- w- what points the fingers toward Russia? Is it because of the agent that was used, the chemical agent used, the poisoning?
3: It, it is the agent specifically because they are believed to be the only ones who, have it, and also because it was used before in Britain to kill um, or attempt to kill a, um, an ex KGB agent who, in a spy swap, had gone to live in Britain. And while the agent fell seriously ill, as uh, Alexei Navalny has a uh, coma and a terrible illness, uh, in that case, uh, a British person who handled the nerve agent, I think it was in a garbage can in Salisbury mm-hmm. uh, to the west of London, died. So uh, it, it was murder and attempted murder in this case. And the two people who uh, are believed to have been behind it, their photographs were taken entering Britain and also uh, in Salisbury uh, on the day of the poisoning, and they only stayed a day. Uh, those men are both members of the GRU, or, uh, and the GRU is the secret police of the military in Russia. So uh, uh, it certainly does point towards Russia. And, the, you know, Russia denies all of this again and again. But when the same country is implicated multiple times, and when the same agents to kill people are sometimes used, uh, they're guilty. At some point, you just have to admit they're guilty. And that is what the West uh, thinks now uh, about this, not just NATO, not just Germany, but all of the West. I I believe Canada has come down also uh, on the side of believing this story about poison. And by the way, it it, it is an agent that if you touch it, you get very ill. And it is believed that uh, the Russians sprinkled this toxin, uh, Novichok, in Alexei Navalny's underwear.
0: Oh my, holy smoke, because initially it was thought it was put into his tea, was it not?
3: It was thought initially that it was his tea, but that apparently is a different kind of agent, one that you would ingest, and the Novichok agent is one that uh, comes into your body through your skin. And so that is uh, very much what what East German military scientists uh, believe. Either his socks or his underwear, and uh, apparently his underwear uh, is preferred to his socks. I don't know why. They may have samples of it, or it hmm. something they got from his body, or where they, the poison is concentrated in his, in his body. I, that I don't know, but that is what they believe.
0: And what is Nalvani's condition now?
3: Serious, uh, grave, uh, but apparently not uh, life-threatening at this point. He was very near to death uh, uh, within an hour or two of having somehow got this poison into his blood system. He's in Germany's best, or at least its most well-known good hospital the the uh, charity or Charite hospital in Berlin, very famous hospital going back more than a century. Uh, he is getting world class care, but he is still a comatose.
0: How did he get to Germany? What was that process?
3: Well, of course, it was delayed. Russia said, uh, first of all, they wouldn't give his family access to him in Russia, and then their doctors decided he was too ill to travel. Uh, in countries such as Canada, it's really the family that, that decide these things. They listen to doctors and very often take doctor's advice, but it's up to them. In Russia, it doesn't work that way, so he was delayed. The belief is that Russia wanted to delay his medical treatment for at least a couple of days to get the poison out of his system. And uh, apparently that didn't work. Finally... After a day or two of yes, no, yes, no, and his family getting limited access to him, his own doctors getting limited access to him, uh, a hospital flight was arranged, uh, a critical care flight that, that took him to Berlin.
0: How much of a threat is uh, Nalvani to uh, Putin? How how Why now? Why is this happening now?
3: Well, he's not that big a threat. Nobody is a threat to Putin. And the reason they aren't a threat to him is because every time anybody kind of puts their head above the parapet, they get squashed. They either get thrown in jail for 10 or 15 years on trumped up charges. They're expelled from the country or, or uh, they're murdered. And so he's not that much of a threat in that context. But also, by Western standards, uh, Putin is still very popular among his own people. His popularity, though, is down. It used to be at around 80 percent and then 70 percent. And now his popularity is somewhere in the 50s, they say. Now, I never really trust Russian polls, but uh, that is what they say. Yeah, but Putin is still hugely popular. Uh, he is the guy that Russians want, Russians Historically, back to the time of the czars, uh, liked these kind of people. And the way czars and uh, Stalin in the Soviet period and Putin deal with their enemies is through things like poison. Uh, I read an article in the United States by some professors that say that since the 15th century, Russians have been eliminating their enemies with poison. Uh, So this is a very old game in Russia. The Western reaction, though, is interesting. Every time Russia does something outrageous, that includes the invasion and seizure of Crimea, their actions in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, uh, what they've done with uh, what used to be Soviet Georgia, the the country of Georgia, is every time they do something terrible, the West tut-tut. They strongly condemn it. That's what Canada did this time. That's what other Western nations did. And then there are no real consequences besides some sanctions and some visa restrictions on on a few Russian officials. And and that's not nearly enough. Uh, If the West wants to stop this sort of thing, they've got to make a lot more noise about it and do concrete things like stop trading in important specific areas to Russia, we won't do it. And so Putin kind of acts with impunity. I think it's part of the reason that Xi, uh, Chairman Xi Jinping in China, is emboldened with the Uyghur minority, the Muslim minority there, and with the crackdown on the Hong Kong Chinese. The West always talks a good game, but when push comes to shove, it doesn't do much. And so these dictators pretty much do whatever they please.
0: And obviously, the, uh, the condition the world's in right now, it is prime for this sort of divisiveness. Uh, is this because uh, less concern over Russia because China is more of a concern than Russia is at this point?
3: Absolutely a factor. Absolutely a factor. Yeah. The Russian military, I, I was just reading in the past few days about uh, what Americans consider to be their top threat, what American military people consider to be their top threat. And it's overwhelmingly China, 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 China. And it is a huge threat, one that people in countries such as Canada kind of ignore at their peril. But Russia has kind fallen off the map. And yet Russia is a country with nukes, with nuclear weapons. And it is a country that can still cause tremendous problems to nations that are friendly towards Canada, such as Poland, uh, such as Ukraine. And in all cases, The West and Canada, I believe, should be more vigilant, but we have so many problems of our own right now, and everybody's enthralled or entranced or disgusted by the theater of Donald Trump's presidency in the United States, and that also takes uh, a lot of our attention. And so we're not really paying uh, nearly as much uh, uh, attention and time to Vladimir Putin, to Russia, to China. And uh, in such periods of time, uh, dictators get emboldened. Uh, Hitler had a pretty good run in the 1930s before he started to cause his biggest problems because so many in the West, really uh, starting with Chamberlain, but there were others, couldn't really be bothered, and it got us into a deeper hole. And uh, that is my fear now. We're not facing war tomorrow or anything like that. But it is a slippery slope, and the next few years could be very difficult, aside from the coronavirus, which, of course, is a huge problem just in and of itself.
0: That was my next question. How has the COVID-19 virus affected Russia?
3: Well, of course, smoke and mirrors. Russia now is, I believe, the third or fourth uh, most infected country in the world, Uh, but curiously, uh, they rank about 40th or 50th in actual deaths. So Russia, miraculously, according to Russian statistics, the outcome if you get coronavirus is probably uh, 10 times better for you than it is in Canada. Well, given the—I I lived in Russia for eight years—the terrible state of their healthcare care system, uh, these figures are preposterous there's no way that Russians are 10 times safer than Canadians. It just does not make sense at all. Uh, And so uh, my belief, the belief of many people, including a lot of Russians, is that they're cooking the books and, as usual, not telling their, their people the whole truth. And when you don't have an effective press, when there is no political opposition, of course, you can get away with these kind of things. You can a little bit in Canada but it doesn't last very long. You can get away with that stuff in Canada for a couple of months. You can get away with that kind of stuff in Russia for decades.
0: What about, though, Matthew, when people start dying? Like if this turns in, or who knows what state it's in now, but if this turns into a catastrophe for Russia and and all of a sudden people start dying, I mean, is that not going to change the tune?
3: Well, you would think, but already there are anecdotal reports of, long queues of ambulances at some hospitals, uh, a, a greatly increased number of burials, although they say they're not related to COVID, but statistically more of them. But in Russia, where the police really run everything and where people are still very afraid of the police, Terror works, you know, and that's part of the reason, of course, for the Navalny thing. It's to, uh, to use the old French expression to encourage les autres, to, to, to make the others aware that this could happen to you if you don't play ball. So Russians will be more silent than Canadians might be when faced with the same evidence right in front of their face. It doesn't mean they don't think it, but they dare not express their view because there's a history of people disappearing into the gulags or being killed uh, if they if they make too much noise that the state doesn't like.
0: Will Russia need the world's help to get it out of uh, COVID-19?
3: Uh, no. Uh, the reason it won't need the Russian the world's help is that it won't ask for any help. Uh, that just is not the Russian way. Uh, this will pass at some point either because of the herd immunity idea or because uh, a vaccine is invented. Don't forget, Russia already has a vaccine. It's the only country in the world. China oh, yeah, they've already, they're
0: out ahead of everybody because they skipped the third stage of testing. Isn't that accurate?
3: Right, right. So they uh, allegedly have a vaccine. They won't be asking others uh, for help. And this is, of course, very unfortunate for the people uh, of Russia. But uh, what will happen, I believe, is that uh, Putin will brazen this through. Maybe the coronavirus isn't as bad as it is for other countries. It's probably not as bad as it's been for the United States. Somehow they'll get through that. But their political problems are mounting, their economic problems, because of coronavirus and the collapse of the price of oil. Russia has a very oil-dependent economy. Uh, All of these things are factors Uh, that mean Russia is in a slow spiral uh, downward. And what happens when countries get in trouble like that, uh, the way to restore a leader's popularity and to unify the people is often to do things outside your own borders. And that is another reason why we we should fear Russia. Ukraine, when Russia went in and took uh, Crimea, Putin's uh, popularity was flagging at that time and went way up. Uh, There may be another uh, Russian adventure outside its own borders to prop up support Mm -hmm. at home. But Russia is a country with very deep uh, problems. Uh, There's also a chance at some point that another strong man in Russia will replace Putin. And uh, uh, you have to be careful uh, about what you wish for in these situations, because uh, well, we don't like Putin at all. There may be somebody behind him who's even worse. I mean, he is nowhere near as bad as Stalin. God forbid if Russia uh, finds another Stalin.
0: Um, last question here. What about if all of a sudden there was to be a change in the U.S. president come November? How does that change Putin's position?
3: Well, superficially, probably it's not good for him because Donald Trump is one of the reasons
0: people think uh,
3: Putin has been able to get away with so much because Putin admires him so much and has claimed that they have this wonderful friendship. Uh, Nobody else anywhere can really get this, but that is what Trump has said. Joe Biden would not be that way at all, but the U.S. military through NATO uh, is still resolutely opposed to Russia, and they, as much as they possibly can, ignore Trump. Biden, I think, will uh, have more congenial policies for the U.S. military. But the U.S. military posture has really not changed that much under Trump as regards Russia, simply because uh, they ignore him. And uh, uh, Trump is trying to do so many other things that, well, well, he says he, he loves Putin. He doesn't really have a lot of time to pay attention to that love since he's always chasing shadows at home.
0: Good point. Uh, Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News, and you can read Matthew's latest column on our website. Matthew, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Long weekend. Bye-bye. Yes you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml all right let's move on lots to talk about still within the city the hamilton police service have said they are going to hold off on running a pilot project for body cameras for now but some say that it is just a matter of time to talk more about all of this chad collins is with us city Councilor Ward five he's with us now chad thanks for the time hope you're doing well
1: all good scott thanks for having me on
0: uh, before we get to uh, the Hamilton police services and the body cams and such I uh, gotta ask you your thoughts on uh, how the conversation shifted yesterday in regard to LRT what's the buzz around council uh, once you heard what you heard coming from the premier
1: well I think in light of the cost estimates that have been bandied about and whether you take the government figures or those that are even still advocating for the project whether you, either figure you use it's it's, it's way over the original cost estimate. And, you know, we were quite clear from the beginning that the municipality is is not paying for anything, whether it be capital or operating. This was always a design, build and operate model. So it ceases to, to amaze me that there are still people in the community who believe that this is a possibility, especially in light of today's climate um, as it relates to the pandemic and, you know, the the, sh- the sure recession that we're going through right now and probably will struggle with over the next couple of years. So, you know, from those, from my colleagues, at least around the table, uh, I, I believe that the majority of council, it, it might be a slim majority, but I, I believe the majority of council are opposed to it. And and I'd be very surprised, even if the, the federal government uh, came to the table with any kind of resources, that um, there's any desire to to donate a dime from council to the project, whether it be operating or capital. It's just, it's not affordable. It's not on our books. It was never anticipated. And so it um, this project just seems to have nine lives, put it that way, Scott.
0: Boy, does it ever. Uh, Your thoughts, though, on being a post-pandemic, different world now, looking Mm -hmm. for infrastructure projects. Uh, Mm -hmm. This one almost shovel-ready now. I don't think you'd say it's still shovel-ready, but pretty close to it. And then uh, private partnership through Leuna and possibly the feds. Uh, Do you see looking at it through a different lens at all?
1: No, I still think at the end of the day, someone's going to ask the city for something, and they're asking for resources that we don't have we do have an infrastructure deficit uh, the tr- transit system is is not part of that infrastructure deficit so I'd I'd certainly welcome a stimulus package from the feds and for the province I'd, I'm almost certain that when an election called and and as is the case uh, you know usually when an election called they they start announcing projects and and funds and, and things for municipalities and in particular certain ridings. so what I would anticipate and what I would hope for is that if there is a, a stimulus package on the horizon that it actually addresses some of the city's shortfalls that we've had on our books for some time. And, you know, pick a facility, uh, you know, um, First Ontario Centre has been in the news. I, I know we're looking at a partnership right now with the private sector, but I use that as an example of an aging facility that needs some work. And if federal and provincial funds are made available, we, you know, we would look to our libraries, our ref centers, our roads, our bridges. Those are sort of the basics as it relates to municipal services and those are i believe for my constituents and for my council colleagues at the top of the list not something that is an enhanced new project where there's unknown costs associated with the operating.
0: So you don't think that any of this new discussion has legs moving forward.
1: I don't believe so. I don't believe so and I and I, I the city has no capacity to take on debt so you know I understand that some have mentioned that the city could borrow money from the private sector well it's pretty hard to beat the interest rates that the city can get. So from a borrowing capacity, we're, we're in position to do that on our own. Our issue is debt, and we're, we're not interested in taking on debt. It's much like a credit card. You have to pay for the principal and the interest. And there's a big price tag attached to that as it relates to the LRT. So we're, I, I understand that some will, sit, will, will do anything at this point to keep it alive. Um, you know, if we're in the two to $3 billion range for just its capital costs, uh, uh, why would we sink an opportunity for resources like that from other levels of government into something that, again, isn't part of our infrastructure deficit at this point in time? So, I, you know, those discussions will happen, I think, Scott, at a later date. Um, uh, we're get, still getting mixed messages from the province. One week, it doesn't look like they're supporting it. The next week, it looks like they're supporting it. And there's this big question mark in terms of where the federal government's at. And I know that I know our own personal financial situation as it relates to the pandemic. I can't imagine what the books like for the look like for the federal government and the province. So I'd be surprised, you know, if if all the funds were made available in light of the cost, the cost escalation that has been uh, you know, publicly advertised.
0: Chad Collins is with us, city councillor, Ward 5. Chad, let's talk about uh, body cameras. Has this discussion changed, body cameras being worn by Hamilton Police Service or even any other police service, since uh, the death of George Floyd? How has this discussion changed?
1: Well, we look at it in a Canadian context, and we're, you know, I I understand there's a lot going on south of the border, and that's where we've seen the nonsense related to defund the police. And we certainly... You know, we've received emails and we had that discussion yesterday. And, of course, uh, body-worn cameras, as was noted in the report, um, you know, there's a contingent out there that would like to see Hamilton police and other police services across the country wear them. Um, there is another uh, portion of our of our constituency who are part of the defund the police movement who say, look, we're, we're trying to get less resources for police, not more. So they're opposed to them. And then I think there's a lot of people out there who just don't have an opinion. It's not something that I regularly receive calls or emails from my constituents about in terms of it being a priority but it certainly is a topic of conversation so we we've studied it now for a number of years and we're waiting for other examples and there are very limited very few police services in Canada it's certainly common in the United States but in Canada um, there are a few examples to date to glean information from in terms of you know the positive aspects and and some of the pitfalls I, I think the overriding concern Scott has been cost and so I, I you know I said yesterday at the board meeting I think it's inevitable for body-worn cameras to be uh, with all police services at some point in time we, we see you know we're being taped every almost minute of our life when we're out in public yeah whether you're in the grocery store or whether you're you're at the bank or whether you're on public transit now we have cameras for the safety and security of our transit operators and every person has a you know a smartphone in their pocket ready to shoot something if it's if it's happening so I don't buy the um, the privacy issues. It's we we're, we're we're about a decade or two past that now. Uh, but I do think the affordability issue is is something that is concerning for us. And you know we have to be cognizant of the fact that only so many things can be funded in a calendar year through our capital budget. And back to the last conversation, the the financial landscape has changed for everyone, and the city's not immune to you know some of those economic um, issues that everyone's facing. And we don't have this in our capital budget. Next year we're required by law, all police forces services, sorry, are required to update their nine eleven systems. That's gonna cost us two million. We've long planned for a new police station in Waterdown, and that's on our books. And so, you know, from a from a, a priority perspective, body worn cameras aren't at the top of the list as it relates to the police's capital needs. But I don't think it's something we wanna discount. So we're gonna wait and see what happens in Toronto. We'll wait and see what happens with this pending recession. I think we're in one already, technically, and uh, we'll see what our financial situation is as we move along. And hopefully, as with all things, um, you know, the technology improves and usually the cost comes down. And so hopefully we can benefit from that as well.
0: I remember talking about this uh, a year or so ago, perhaps longer, when studies were going on with other police services and such, and it was decided at that time that that Hamilton didn't need a pilot project because there were others going on that they could gather information from. Is there any need for uh, a pilot project now? Would the same not apply? Are we not learning from other services that are doing this?
1: Yeah, we could. We certainly could do it without a pilot. I think the recommendation from from the chief and our should team we have
0: leadership. a pilot Chad sorry give me that again do you, Scott? do you think we do you think we should have a pilot project
1: um, I'm indifferent on it I mean I, I I think we can probably learn from our neighbors in Toronto uh, or others in the region whether it be peel or others that um, you know what, what what they learned from the system I, I don't know how many service providers there are Scott in terms of you know how many systems there are for body worn cameras so I don't know if one System that's on the, sold privately is the same as some of the others. I don't know if there are differences between those systems. I don't know if there's one consistent, uh, you know, camera company that provides it to everyone. That was one of the questions we had yesterday. There's, you know, the provincial legislation is still pretty gray as it relates to um, holding on to the information, the use of the information, who has access to the information, and so we're, we've asked as part of our recommendation to ask the province to to weigh in on that and, and make a consistent policy across the province so all police services are dealing with the same rules um, with body-worn cameras. So pilot, it's a very small cost. I think it was in the $300,000 range. There were some unknowns as it relates to, again, the retention of some of the, um, the images and the videos. But uh, I think we could probably garner enough from uh, our neighbours to understand whether it's a benefit here in Hamilton or not. The, the dilemma with a pilot is once you're in for the pilot. You're almost locked in to, to rolling it out across the service. And so if you're in for the 300000 which isn't a, a yeah. great amount of money in the grand scheme, you're basically locking yourself into the $5 million afterwards, it, if, if I look at what other police services have done across Canada.
0: So you bring up a good point here, Chad. Is this something that should be decided by individual services or police boards or such, or is this something that should be done at a higher level? Is this something that provincially or federally should be mandated?
1: Yeah, and that's something that I I raised yesterday, and I likened it, and I know they're two completely different subject matters, but if you recall, Scott, the, the whole smoking bylaw debate that we had in the province when the McGinty government was around, and municipalities were calling on the province to say, look, it'd just be a whole lot easier for everyone if there was a province-wide strategy related to no smoking in public places and private establishments. And what happened is the government didn't act. Municipalities went ahead and made their own local um, policies and bylaws up, and we implemented them. And if you went to a restaurant in Burlington, you had a different kind of bylaw than you did if you were visiting Lock Street um, in Hamilton. And, and what eventually happened was almost all large urban mun- municipalities implemented a smoking bylaw and the province at the 11th hour after all the dust had settled, because there was definitely controversy with that. The province weighed in and, and, and came through with a province-wide bylaw when many of us had had it for years. And so I, I liken that to, I think there's benefits for us to have a province-wide policy on it. Right now, they've shied away from it. They've advised um, police services that they're not on for implementing it with the opp and that's from a service delivery perspective that's their own uh, choice but i think from a legislation as it relates to rules and regulations there should be one consistent policy across the province and nothing prevents them from from weighing in on that issue i understand though that they've been completely preoccupied with more important things so i don't fault them for that i just think it's something that should be on the radar
0: plus don't you think chad once they commit to that they also commit themselves to dollars towards it no
1: yeah, and, and traditionally the province does provide grants for municipalities, uh, CC, uh, CCTV cameras were on our agenda yesterday as it relates to provincial grants that have been made available. We've asked them as part of yesterday's recommendation that they consider making grants available to municipalities for either a pilot project um, in, with the service or the full implementation of cameras. They, they are partners in the police business, so we have to follow a provincial act as it relates to operations. But they're also a funding partner. And I think it's important for them to, you know, just as I said yesterday, it's it's inevitable that all municipalities are going to get there. If we look at what's going on in the United States and how their jurisdictions have utilized cameras, it's commonplace. And, Scott, if you look to the United States model, many states and the federal government pay for those systems. They don't uh, they don't rely on the municipal jurisdictions to pay for whether it's the cameras in the cars with the dash cams or whether it's uh, body-worn cameras with officers. So I think it's not, there's examples, um, you know, clearly across North America where the province should be a partner rather than a, disinter- a disinterested party, if you want to call them that at this point.
0: Does it make us look bad that we're sort of the only ones that don't have this, considering it is where it is everywhere else? Or is it, again, apples to oranges here?
1: Well, if we're talking about the United States, it is apples to oranges because we have two yeah. completely different policing um, service delivery models. There they have elected representatives in many jurisdictions with sheriffs being elected and, and other things that are completely different than our own here. It's, of course, our system is very non-political. There's clear separation between governance and politics and the service itself, and that's the way it should be. That's the way the act is written here in Ontario. Um, and, and I think if you were to look at Canadian examples, which is an apples-to-apples comparison, um, we're, it, it's still early days for body-worn cameras. There, as the report you know, noted yesterday... There are very few examples in Canada right now to, um, you know, to, to look at the systems that have been implemented. And, and I think the public is still split, as the report mentioned. There's a lot of people saying, is there really a need for that kind of expenditure and that kind of a service with, uh, with police services, whether it be here in Hamilton or elsewhere across the country?
0: Chad, are we asking the police to do too much? I mean, you know, uh, prior to defunding the police, it was they need more training for mental health. They need more yep. training for cybersecurity. They need more training for to spot terrorist activity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we are talking about body cameras, which is obviously another massive expense. And then yep. uh, all of a sudden it's, it seems the same that we're, that we're saying all that are now saying cut them off, defund the police. So uh, are we asking them to do too much here?
1: Well, they've always been expected to to help during a time of need, and you know when you're calling nine one one, traditionally it's the police people are calling for. When you look at the volume of calls, and um, you know we expect so much of them. They think about the services that they provide when they show up at a call. There, many times they're expected to be uh, medics during emergency situations. They're marriage counselors when they show up for a domestic yeah. dispute. They're mental health uh, workers when they're showing up for someone who's distressed on the street. And may have mental health issues and they're also social service workers when they show up with someone who's just in a terrible situation they're not just you know the the stereotypical show up at a bar fight on a saturday night from the 1960s kind of thing it's today's policing is such so much more complex than it was many years ago and we do expect a lot and to be clear and i mentioned this yesterday scott at our meeting they are trained for those circumstances and and those interactions with the public the, the training they receive is constant And I think what we emphasized yesterday is that they need to be they need more resources to deal with these complex situations. And we don't just call for the police now. The police are showing up at calls and responding to service calls with mental health workers beside them. So civilians who are skilled and trained at dealing with people with mental health issues, they're showing up with, um, in some cases, social service workers where someone may have a housing issue and, and the call is uh, is someone who's on the street and may need some guidance to a shelter or into a into a home setting, and so they're they're working in partnership with hospitals. They're working in partnership with social service workers, and I think it shows how complex those systems that we have are so complex um, that I, I think you're right. I think we do ask a lot, and I think the expectations are that uh, everything's going to go smoothly when they show up with these very complex situations, and unfortunately, that's that's not always the case. And so, I think. More resources into training, de-escalation tactics in terms of what's the most modern uh, ways and means in which to deal with someone who has mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Those are that's the path we need to go along. We shouldn't be penalizing the police because they have a tough job. We should be giving them more resources to ensure that when they do show up at a call, they know what they know what to do and and they've been trained to to properly deal with it.
0: Well said. Chad Collins is with us, City Councilor Ward 5, talking about Hamilton Police Service. Going to hold off on running a pilot uh, project for body cameras for now. Chad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Take care.